Hello, this is Martin Medeiros, and welcome to the Persuasion Lab. Today we're going to talk about how to save tens of thousands before you call your attorney, your CPA, or your insurance agent regarding a contract. So we're going to review some basic things that will help you save money when you go into a transaction and start reviewing documents. But before we get into today's podcast, I would like to mention a couple of places to visit where you can view some more of my content. Please subscribe to this podcast. And if you would like to learn more about negotiation, you can head on down to negotiationstrategist.com. We also have a Facebook page called Negotiation Strategist Research and an Instagram page called The Persuasion Lab. We post content weekly to the Facebook and Instagram pages, so check us out there. And if you want to subscribe to our newsletter, we have lots of tips and exercises to make sure that you are influencing, persuading, and negotiating at the best of your ability We'll put you on the newsletter, and you will get those updates. On to today's topic. Contracts are living documents. They can change over time, and they can sometimes be exhumed from the dead. Uh, you don't want zombie contracts. You kind of want to know what they are, what they have in store. So please read all your contracts, number one. So... Our next portion, we're going to go over the basic 15 parts of a contract. And I'm telling you these things not as legal advice. You should talk to your attorney, your CPA, and your insurer about this. This is strictly for information to give you a heads up to make your contracts more effective before you hand them over to your attorney to review or for uh, to your CPA to run the financials and see if you're actually going to be making money on the deal. Uh, without further ado, I want to get into the general concept of a contract. Any first-year law student knows it's an offer, acceptance, and consideration. Those are three parts. Offer is, hey, I want to do business. Acceptance is, okay, I agree to do business with you. And consideration is a promise for a promise or money or something of value exchange between the parties. Without those three things, you don't have a contract. It's the sound of one hand clapping. There has to be a meeting of the minds. And that speaks to a lot of the parts in the contract, this meeting of the minds. What were the parties thinking? At a very high level, a lot of contracts have a front page, the agreement, and then they have attachments. And as a general rule, you do not want to put the dynamic portions in that master agreement, things that change over time, specifications, pricing, delivery time, stuff like that, unless it's well-known and well-established. Generally, every time I have to modify a master contract, that is much more expensive than simply drafting the contract so the things that are more or less, not in stone, but that will stand the test of time are in the master, and the things that may change over time delivery schedules, the items on the thing, they should go in an attachment, a schedule, an exhibit, or something less. So we want non-dynamic portions in the master. We want dynamic portions in an attachment. And we want to wrap those all together that all form the one contract, the one agreement. Now, 
that's at a very high level. Let's go into the actual organs of the contract. And I picked 15 of the, the top 15, I guess. We'll go through them quickly. But know that there can be many, many more sections. I mean, I have drafted and am drafting, as we speak, 65-page uh, agreements, very complex agreements. Uh, these have a lot of content in them. These are very basic. And I'm speaking to general goods and services contracts that businesses may get into. The first part of the contract, I, I call the masthead. It kind of has a, the name of the agreement and it has the parties to the agreement, the parties to the agreement. This is super important because my first thing I do is check with the Secretary of State and see if those parties are who they say they are. For example, they may say Acme Corp, a Alaska corporation. I will go to the Alaska Secretary of State's website and look up Acme and a lot of times they are not listed. The parties made a mistake. They didn't know what state they were formed in or this is another form contract that they recycled or they may have been administratively dissolved which means I'm contracting with a non-entity with nobody. I can say I've been practicing for 25 years approximately 30% of all contracts have errors in the parties. Either the parties didn't renew their corporation thing, they got the name wrong, and it can be a, a small error, but it's still the wrong party. For example, if I say ABC Corporation, but my filing says ABC Inc., those are two different entities, and they are not the same. And a lot of times I will look at one company because they said Inc. versus Corporation. I'll look it up and say, hmm, the people who founded this agreement have nothing to do with my client. What's going on here? That's why the masthead is important. Make sure the names of the parties are the real parties. The next thing are this, uh, the second part, masthead is one. Number two is, are the recitals. The recitals, you know, and some think this section, which has like the wherefore, wherefore, now, therefore clauses are things of powdered wigs and feathered pens. And let me tell you, they're really important because they speak to the state of the mind at the time of signing. Now, this helps the parties remember because multi-year contracts, you can kind of forget why you did the things. And over time, things can get sideways and the parties find themselves in court trying to enforce a contract that they long migrated away from the original intent. And if they do, they probably should have amended the contract or substantially reformed it. The recitals are solid evidence of why the parties did this contract in the first place. It talks about where their minds met. So recitals are important. They're really important. And they help you establish whether or not someone was being totally honest. If they made a representation to get you to the table and they didn't do that, for example, XYZ Corp is a civil engineering corp and you and you did the deal and you found out that they don't have any professional engineering license. This would be fraud in the inducement perhaps, uh, fraud in the fact that it could be a lot of different types of fraud, but it's backwards looking. If you say things in the recitals which should be incontrovertible statements of fact, that is an issue. So recitals are important. I love them. The third thing I want to talk about are definitions. Definitions should be capitalized in the com in the uh, contract. Do not pay an attorney to do grammar and capitalize the contract. You can do that yourself at probably a lower hourly rate than your attorney can. But capitalized terms, if they're used, capitalized and uncapitalized in the agreement, and some of them are defined, the court will generally take the 
uncapitalized term as a general meaning, as a general term. For example, you may say something like site, S-I-T-E, the place where the construction will begin. And later on the contract, you use little S-I-T-E. Well, that would mean generically any site, not particularly your site. So it's ambiguous. Ambiguities are a problem. We'll talk about those in a minute. Definitions are important. The next part, number four, the business deal. Number four is the business deal. This is the basis of all transactions. What's the need? Who's filling the need? How's it getting filled? And how is the person filling the need getting paid? Basically, need, fill need, collect check. If those things are unclear, or if I have to hunt for them, or if a judge and jury don't understand, chances are over time, the parties may forget how that, that happens. So be very clear on those business deal terms. That's the best thing you can tell your attorney. Here's what we want to do. We want to buy this good. We want to buy this service. We want to subscribe to this software as a service, whatever it is. If your attorney and if your CPA understand and if your insurer understands what it is, then they can think about, okay, I know where the allocation is. I know where the money is and I know what the insurable risks are. Without those things, don't make it difficult for people to spend hours figuring out the basics of your business deal. Number five, representations and warranties. Representations are backwards looking. In other words, why did I go to this person for this thing? Because they told me they could do something. They told me they could build a house. They told me they could develop software. They told me that they were an expert in cybersecurity. That's a representation. So representations are, are reverse. They look backwards. Representations reverse. They look backwards. Warranties are what happens after I sign that contract. After I sign it, I'm looking forward. A 30-day warranty will make good. Uh, a little story, I just bought a brand new computer. The keyboard stuck one key. Of course, what key stuck? It was a return key, which makes it impossible to type in passwords and everything. So send the computer back within the warranty period, uh, 30 days, and uh, hopefully they will fix it for me. I just did that yesterday. So warranties are after you sign the deal, after they cash your check, what do they do? In this case, it's replacement, repair, and at the end of the day, maybe refund. Uh, those are typical three remedies we have, which is another clause. The issue with representations and warranties, all you have to know is reverse warranties, uh, sorry, reverse representations, forward-looking warranties. Next, I want to talk a little bit about loss prevention. Loss prevention. Now, this basically talks about who bears the risk for what. It's a shifting of responsibilities. Once I know something went wrong, like a breach of warranty or indeed breach of contract, we want to talk about this sixth element, which is loss prevention. So you typically look at clauses that are called indem indemnification. And there are three legs to the indemnification stool that you've got to be really clear on. One, indemnification, which means pay a judgment or a settlement. Who's going to pay if things go sideways? Next leg of that stool is the hold harmless clause. Hold harmless. This means you won't sue me 
or counterclaim if things within the scope of the deal go sideways. In other words, I'm shielded from you, my contracting partner, coming against me because you screwed up. And even though I may be part to blame, you're still going to take the uh, the hit because I wouldn't be here except for you and you're making money off me. So that's why you should indemnify me, for example. The third leg of that school is defend, which means pay my legal bill, hire the attorney. Those are things that involve loss prevention. The fourth leg to the stool, which is an obligation for insurance. Let's talk about loss prevention and insurance for a minute. So legally, I have those three legs, indemnify, hold harmless, and defend against claims. The third or the fourth leg, excuse me, I like is not a promise. It's a third party contract with an insurer, which means you can cover the risk financially. In fact, that's part of the corporate bargain. The corporate bargain is I'm going to limit your liability, the state says, if you capitalize and insure the risk you're creating as you enter the marketplace because corporations are an absolute net good. But if you get out of balance, you're going to create more risk than you than value you provide. So you we want to make sure you are adequately capitalized, which means you have the money. Very few companies, especially startups, have millions of dollars or $100,000 in the bank where they can insure their loss if someone gets hurt by their activity. But they can buy insurance for a few hundred bucks, a few thousand bucks a year. That's how they adequately capitalize. So having that loss prevention, having that insurance Make sure that you can support those three legs of indemnity, hold harmless, and defend. And talk to your insurer about this because this is important because you've got to have what they call an insurable risk, insurable risk. If the contract creates a risk that is part of the deal or likely or possible, not likely, but possible in the deal, you want to make sure that that is covered by insurance. What's a non-insurable risk? It's something that has nothing to do with a deal that may benefit a third party who's not part of the contract. So you've got to talk about insurable risk to make sure that those three legs on the um, general legal obligation on loss prevention are sturdy by sticking in this fourth leg, which is actual insurance. Next, let's talk about what happens if things go sideways or about to go sideways? We'll call this this seventh point a dispute resolution procedure. Dispute resolution. This is how do we work out issues? Do we go straight to court, which is certainly a way to uh, determine disputes, or do we have an interim step? Perhaps I have, I put a clause like, the CEOs of each company will meet with it in five days to see if there's not an easy way to dispute, uh, work out the dispute without uh, going to court or the next escalation path. The es next escalation path could be going to court. It also could be going to mediation. Mediator is a disinterested, neutral, third party who basically tries to speak reason to the parties who can't talk to each other and therefore they need an intermediary. Another intermediary, which is like a private judge, a private judge is called an arbitrator. Arbitrator is basically, I'll hire you to um, 
do my dispute for me and render a judgment. Once I have that judgment in hand, I can generally enforce that in a court, but the court won't have evidence, trial, all that procedure. All that is done in arbitration, which generally can be less expensive than litigation. It is not always. It depends on the arbitration company you use. There are arbitration companies that uh, are very expensive that totally eclipse the cost of any litigation but that's basically loss prevention uh, sorry that is dispute resolution number seven number seven uh, solving issues that happen after we close essentially we close as a dispute what do we do okay things go sideways uh, the contract is coming to an end either by dispute breach or by its terms what happens after it for example I hire a engineer to do a complex systems engineering problem and at the end of six months uh, she's done with the project. What happens? Do I get her notes? Do I get her uh, the software she developed for me or the system she developed? Does she have to destroy it? Can she reuse it as an example? These are things I want to know in a termination section. So we have a term. The term of the agreement is six months, but termination. And what happens at termination? Does she have to destroy all her records that she did working on my project? Does she have to transfer them to me? Uh, can she use me as a, uh, a testimonial provider? These are things you want to think about after termination. Very important, not just the term, but termination. What happens after termination? Next, let's talk about this idea of choice of law. Choice of law is number 10. This basically means what law am I going to apply? There are some laws that you do not want to apply. Uh, certainly the uh, some international laws you don't want to apply, but if this is a, a United States contract, for example, we'll want the law applied to where the parties exist where they do business, where the deal is happening, where the real estate is, something like that. Something tenable. Don't pick an arbitrary third uh, state, third jurisdiction law, generally speaking, uh, because it may not be enforced. Now, if this is negotiated where both parties don't agree uh, to the choice of law because they have their heels in on this issue, then sometimes you hear people picking a third party. Uh, for example, one party says, hey, I want New York law. The other party says California. Then they say, okay, let's settle on Delaware. And they'll both pick Delaware. That happens, and that's fine. But generally, you want it to have something to do relevant to the contract. And some laws, they're called conflict of laws provisions, uh, mandate that you, in the event of a dispute, you have to use, or a conflict of laws, you have to use a certain law. And a lot of people disclaim conflict of laws, so those um, blue pencil provisions don't make it in. That's number 10. Number 11, we want to talk about amending the contract. Amending the contract. What happens if you want to change things? Uh, a good contract is a living thing. It changes through time. Well, you should amend it and make sure that the current terms reflect what the deal is. Next, number 12, I want to talk about assignment. Can someone else perform this agreement? For example, in our civil engineer or if our uh, systems engineer, if I want this individual independent contractor and if she is really good, I don't want her to assign it to another company 
that I may not know about that may not be as good. Sometimes that may be possible. If she gets ill, she may ask to assign it to a party, and that's okay. Um, you can put in the contract, I will uh, agree to the assignment, and I won't withhold it. Or if there is an assignment uh, to this independent contractor uh, service, I want to make sure that person steps up. So there's different things you can do on assignment. But think about if you want to assign this stuff, who's going to do it? Or if the company is taken over, uh, acquired, you probably want, if you're um, looking for an acquisition exit and I'm the, the company providing the service, I probably want to have that contract assignable because I don't want to have to carve out or ask permission to assign the contract that could hurt the value of me if I'm the target company selling. Assignment, often overlooked, miscellaneous, sometimes called boilerplate clause, totally critical strategically. The next clause I want to talk about is this, uh, what they call the uh, counterparts, or how is it going to be signed? Sometimes you have like e-sign. Can the party sign electronically? Do they all have to be on one page, or can I have a collection of signed pages? At the end of the day, sign your contracts in some fashion. You find a lot of people say, hey, we had a contract. It, they aren't performing. They send me the contract. There is no signature. In fact, the party's names aren't even filled in. This is a problem because this is not good evidence of meeting of the minds. If parties' names don't appear, if they haven't signed it, they can claim, hey, that wasn't our contract. Even if they were performing it, you have to go to other more complex legal theories to get them to perform. You don't want to go there. Written contracts save money, save time. If you look over these provisions I'm naming today, you will be awesome at it and you'll greatly reduce the cost. So, Fourteenth thing I want to talk about is this idea of the entirety clause. And this basically says anything we talked about before signing this agreement, it doesn't matter. This is the agreement that takes us forward for this scope of what we're talking about here. And there's also other provisions that can be in the entirety. For example, if it's an ambiguous contract, there's an operation of law that says in the case of ambiguity, it's construed against the person who drafted it. So if I have my contract with my corporate logo on it and it's ambiguous, the judge is going to say, hey, this is your paper. You should have known better. This is not. This is a subjective standard. There's no objective way to determine performance. I'm going to say you lose, guy who painted this contract with your logo on it because you're obviously the drafter. You can put a clause in the entirety agreement or... It can be your freestanding clause where it says, hey, in the case of an ambiguity, it will not be construed against the drafter because we both haggled over this thing and it's a fair deal. Finally, I think I kind of mentioned it again. That's the, uh, the, the in the countersign thing. I kind of got into it, but signature blocks, put them, sign them, make sure the deal is closed. So those are the 16 clauses you can think about and get in a really good position before you start calling up your professionals and they start billing you by the hour. Uh, so, uh, well, at a high level, before we got into the points, we talked about the three points, offer, acceptance, consideration, the master agreement. We want to be those non-dynamic, set-in-stone kind of clauses, and then the attachment schedules, exhibits, uh, specification sheets, statements of work, we want those those dynamic portions to be attached to that master agreement. We don't want those dynamic portions in the body because it costs more money to modify the master agreement than these more dynamic por uh, portions. Now, the main parts of the contract, let's go, that, go through that list of 
15, the masthead takeaway there is make sure those parties are existing and the information is accurate. The recitals, this talks about the present mental state of the parties, why they went to the deal. It's important. Irrefutable statements of fact in those recitals. Number three, definitions. Make sure they're capped. Make sure they're clear. Make sure there's objective standards. Four, what's the business deal? Really think about this. What's the need? Who's filling the need? And how are they getting paid? Next, representations and warranties. Remember, representations go in reverse. They look backwards. How did the parties get to the table? Warranties look forward. Loss prevention. Remember, there's three legs to that stool plus one. The clause on loss prevention is indemnify, which means pay judgment. Hold harmless. I won't sue you. And three, defend. You're going to pay my legal bill. And the fourth leg, which is an independent thing, is your insurance is an insurable risk of the contract. That's part of the bargain. Seven, dispute resolution procedure. We talked about an escalation uh, sequence. Number eight, termination procedure. What's the term of the contract and what's the termination procedure? What happens at the end of the contract? If it's for cause or without cause, who gets what, when? What happens? Next, we talked about choice of law, which is what law and venue at which I mentioned venue, which is where the parties will have the dispute. We also talked about amendment. Where is the amendment? We also talked about assignment. Who can assign the contract? Talked about counter signing the agreement. Make sure they're all on one page or we have e-sign. Talked about the entire agreement and about ambiguity and also the signature blocks themselves. Who signs them? And there's a little bit of question about notarization. Certain contracts require notaries. Most do not. This is state by state and country by country jurisdiction. So you're going to have to think about that. So that's how to save tens of thousands on your contracts. If you know these points and know strategically where you want that contract to end, you will better guide your professional crew and they can save you a lot of money by not sussing out some of these details that you have thought about before you put that contract, including those miscellaneous, quote, boilerplate terms. You've got to be good with them because they have important strategic impact on that contract. This is Martin Medeiros. Thank you for joining me in the Persuasion Lab. I would love it if you would subscribe to this podcast, and we will see you next week. Have a great week.